Welcome to BCS, the Chartered Institute for IT. This is the Gem of All Mechanisms podcast. As you know, we speak to people that are doing good uh, for society through the means of IT and computing. And today it's a pleasure for me to speak to Barry Heptonstall. So can I say hello, Barry, first of all? Hello, Brian. Thank you very much for inviting me on. No, I'd love to have you on here. So we're going to talk to you today about uh, entrepreneurship a little bit, about what startups should be doing, that sort of side of things. And I'm sure some of our listeners will think, OK, this is some tips that I need uh, because I've got a brilliant idea and I need to turn it into something. But before we get there, let's start with your background. Uh, when we were chatting before, uh, you were telling me about the ZX81. So let's start there, Barry. Oh, I have. In fact, I have it on the shelf behind me. I know this has only been recorded. It's not video, but <laughs> it's on the shelf behind me here, the ZX81. Um, nice. 1981, I wanted to buy a CB radio. Uh, the government had just allowed people to have citizens band radio and I was desperate to have a CB radio and my dad saw an advert in the Sunday Times for this computer, the ZX81. Mm. So he persuaded me to spend my uh, my hard-earned cash from my pocket from my paper round um, and spend it on the ZX81. So I did and I typed in pen, print, hello, 20, go to 10, yes. run <laughs> and like a lot of us I was hooked. Um, Absolutely. So it, and did you did you there. get the six did you get the sixteen K RAM pack as well, Barry? I did. That's the question. Well, the wobbly one that always fell off and then That's crashed the one. your Yeah. <laughs> you stuck it on if you stuck a bit of blue tack on as well, it would kind of hold it in place. Absolutely. I, I remember thinking, what on earth can we do with that amount of memory? But anyway, that's another that's another conversation. How, how could you fill it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um so well, that's the um, arc of a career, right? I mean, nineteen eighty one it was one K. My iPhone is 512 billion characters. Yes. Yeah. From 1K to 512 billion in the arc of one career. Yeah. It's quite, quite amazing. Thought, isn't it? Absolutely. It is. Yeah. Now tell us a little bit about your background with IBM as well before we move on to the uh, to the meat of what we're going to talk about, Barry. Well, from ZX81, I taught myself to program. Um, and then I did a computer science degree at Edinburgh. And then I joined IBM as an engineer. And... Um, I was actually slightly unusual having a, an engineering degree uh, and I joined as an engineer and I spent a couple of years as an engineer and then I quite quickly moved into sales. I, I sold one of my customers something and they said, oh, you should be a salesperson. So I moved into sales and um, went, moved up and around the company and I spent a lot of time, I spent 30 IBM before I left and most of the time there I spent running IBM's mainframe computer. So I had that old famous bit of IBM, which is still a very big and important, uh, profitable part of the company, very yeah. important for a lot of IBM's clients. You did something that not a lot of salespeople have done, which is you really know the techie side of it. <laughs> I say to people, it helps if you know what you're talking about. Yes. <laughs> and I, I tried to keep myself, although I was on the sales side and on the business side, I've tried to write my career to continue to understand how technology works you know mm. how does the black blockchain work how does artificial intelligence work um and really tried to kind of keep myself uh, abreast of the technology which has actually ended up being super useful as i've moved into investing in tech startups absolutely being able yeah. to understand the technical side i'm not sure my programming or my soldering skills are are very good <laughs> nowadays but but i know how things are built i've got that kind of engineer's way of looking at a problem. Do you think that helps you sort of cut through a little bit of the vaporware that um, IT is kind of renowned for? Oh, totally. Stuff like the crypto um, yeah. super scam that's been going on for a few years. Blockchain, I think, is fascinating. And I think there's there's some stuff in there. Um, 
However, most of what it was used for or not used for was really just scams and grifts. And I've, I've steered well clear of that, luckily. Interesting. So now uh, let's talk a, a bit about your sort of more recent uh, uh, work then, Barry. So I've been having a little read around. The first thing I almost came across was a small robot company, which I ah. was really interesting. It's an, it's an agri-tech uh, startup. Tell it us is. a little bit about that and what that tells us about what you do. It is super, super interesting what they're doing. Um, so I invested in them actually right at the very beginning of their okay. journey um, when the when the robot was like a little remote control car with a mobile phone screwed on it. Um, and it literally was a remote control car with a mobile phone driving okay. around a field taking pictures of plants. Um, and where they've taken the business to over the last five years, five or six years, is from that to a machine which is about the size of a quad bike, um, but it's a purpose-built agricultural machine uh, which is autonomous fully autonomous so you set it running in your field it drives up and down um, and it takes images of all of the plants uh, and I ended up working actually with the, with the founders Sam and Ben uh, for two years after I left IBM I went to work for them as their head of sales and really what, what we were doing was taking that technology and which was built for farmers and it was built to help farmers to understand what was happening with their crop and what we realized was that the machine that we built was really a scientific instrument and it, it could tell not only farmers what was happening with the crops, but it could also tell the big chemical and seed companies what was happening with the products that they were developing. Because what they end up doing, they, they breed a new um, genetic type of seed, then they have to plant it in the ground along with all the other various varieties they're trying. And then what they have to do is measure the results. So what the robot does is it drives up and down and takes images, high resolution photographs of all of the plants in a field. And then those are put through artificial intelligence software, which then looks at the plants and can individually identify every plant in the field. Typically 20 or 30 million wheat plants in a, in a wheat field, in a medium sized field. Mm. Um, and it can also spot which are the wheat plants and which are the, the, uh, the weeds. And in fact, it could even say, which are the good weeds that are not harmful to the wheat? They don't they don't compete with wheat, and which are the the bad weeds, the ones that are harmful because they're taking the same nutrients. Um, so really, what that's led to now is small robot company are able to make a map of where all the the weeds are. Then they could put that into a standard conventional sprayer. You know the big machines that you see driving across the field with the big arms on them spraying chemicals. Um, and rather than spray chemicals on the whole field because they have this target map of where the weeds are, they can just go and hit the weeds uh, very, very precisely and use a fraction of the amount of chemicals. Obviously that's much better for the planet mm. and also much better financially for the farmer because the chemicals are really, really expensive. Yeah. So they can do that for weed killer, they can do that for things like fertilizer. Uh, and as a small robot company moves forward, they're gonna be able to take that technology and um, use it for other crops and for other types of treatment. Um, so things like treating pest damage, you know, some of the insect damage that, we, that crop, the plants get, for example. So it's a really interesting use of artificial intelligence and robotics combined. Yeah. In fact, that company has probably got every single kind of engineer possible working for them, electrical engineers, mechanical engineers, um, computer scientists to program it, artificial intelligence, data science experts. Uh, obviously, people understand the electronics, people understand mechatronics, so the mechanical and electronic kind of combination. Uh, so there's every type of engineer working there. 
so it was a real joy for me to be a little part of that that company's journey for a couple of years. The uh, the wheat and the weed sounds um, pleasingly biblical in its yes. uh, <laughs> in its solutions. But anyway, um, let let me ask you: is is this typical of the sort of things you're you're looking for, Barry? That um, uh, you know, it needs to be something that contributes because obviously that's that's got huge implications for you know the net zero sort of things that we we are so much more talking about now. It is a it is a nice side benefit of of investing that you can invest things that do good. Um, I suppose as a slightly hard-nosed capitalist, I number one <laughs> want to invest in things that give a really good financial return. Um, and actually, along the way, these companies create jobs, mm. and that's a societal benefit. So, so the way I look at it is, um, if I can help to create some jobs, that's you know that's a really important thing to to do, right? I mean, I'm only paying playing a tiny part. Um, you know, I'm only providing a tiny amount of the financing and a little bit of advice to companies. But if I'm helping to create jobs, then that's a good thing. And then, yeah. of course, all these other benefits um, are also it's very nice, too. I've got quite a lot of investments in educational technology. It was almost where I started. I, I My first investment was in Calm, the mindfulness app, mm-hmm. um, which has obviously got that's got great health benefits. Um, Second one was in Brilliant, which is an educational app. They were both American companies. And then I started investing in the UK. Uh, I've done about 60 now. Um, And the first ones I did, because I did the Brilliant app, I got to know some of the ed tech investors in London. Um, And so I started investing in educational technology companies, which pretty much all have societal benefits, um, whether they're used in schools or universities, or some of them are used in um, lifetime learning, you know, things that you do in the world of work or or beyond university. Interesting. So uh, let's let's um, let's pretend I'm a some sort of genius that's come up with a good idea. It's unlikely, but let's go with it. Um, <laughs> come to you and say, right, I've got this idea, Barry. How do I how do I monetize this? What do you look for uh, in, in the people that come to you? So you mentioned two people there that work with you with small robot company. What is it you're looking for in, in people? Um, it is a lot of it is about the people. Um, really, that's probably the main thing that investors are investing in because they, sometimes the idea is not exactly the right idea. Um, it seems like a good idea, and then what 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 the really good founders will do is they'll go on a journey, and they'll realise that there's you know there's something else just off to the left or just off to the right they'll do what's called a pivot mm. so they'll slightly change the format of the company and what, what the company's targeted at so a lot of it is about investing in the people um you mentioned the idea lots of us have of good ideas the difficult part is making them happen yeah um and i think one of the things that i'm really keen on trying to understand and it's probably because i have this commercial background is I want to see that there is potential value to the customers of that product. So if you have an idea, great, but have you managed to get it into the hands of some users, some customers, some people who are actually using it? Have you managed to build some kind of a minimal viable product, um, you know, which does a little bit? And, and have you managed to get engagement with customers? Do you have some customers paying for it? That would be the ideal. Um, if there are customers who actually like what you've built enough to actually pay you some money, even if it's not very much money, 
even if it's not very many customers, mm. um, that to me can often be enough of a signal to say there's something here and it needs to be investigated. Um, there is a lot in this to do with how uh, to do with the personality of the founders, because setting up a company, starting a company, self-evidently, it's not easy, right? It, there's it's a roller coaster journey. Yeah. Um, and what I want is I want to be able to look a founder in the eye and see there's a certain kind of fierceness there, a relentlessness that they're they're not going to give up, um, that they really want to make this thing happen. Um, the best founders see something in the world that's broken and they have to fix it. They're just compelled to go and fix it yeah. and nothing nothing will stop them. Um, so that's that's the kind of thing that I'm trying to assess. It's this is the there's an art and a science to investing. I suppose the science is the numbers and the you know the spreadsheets and the projections and the cash flow and that's kind of numeric and sciency. The art is about understanding the people, reading the people and the people dynamics. Um, sometimes I ask myself, would I work for them? Right. So Sam and Ben that did the small robot company, two very very capable people. Uh, ben with a more corporate entrepreneurial background, Sam, who was actually a farmer, um, and then he went to work for Accenture as a management consultant. Right. Um, so he had a business background and a farming background. And so the two of them, they had a lot of credibility as founders. When I when I invested, I thought these are clearly excellent people who are going to make something very interesting happen. I don't know what it's going to be because it's a little electric. It's a remote control car with a mobile phone stuck on it. Um, <laughs> But actually, as time goes by and as you increase the size of your team, it's amazing what that can turn into with lots of iterations. Um, so that version that they had when, when I left, the one that looked like a piece of farm machinery, it looked like John Deere had built, built it. It was that professional piece of equipment. Mm. Um, good people can do that with a bit of money and a bit of time and some iterations. They can They can make something like that. They can manifest something like that in the world. How long do you do you give people? I mean, obviously, there's a limit, right, to time. I, I, I take your point that, that you know people require time. When you're investing, you need to see some movement fairly quickly. What, what's your sort of rule of thumb on that? One of the things about what I'm doing is it it is actually slightly long term. So this is nothing like investing in the stock market, where you can buy some shares and you can sell them again ten minutes later, or ten days later, or ten years later. Um, this is private company investing. When you invest, you're locked in. It's a little. It's more kind of akin to putting money in your pension. You put money in, and then you you don't forget about it, but you kind of hope that something yeah. good is going to happen. But it could be ten years later when okay. something's happen happening. So I am. Is we sometimes call it patient capital in in the world of investing. You have to be patient. Um, but a lot of the, the way that venture capital, of which angel investing is a, is a part, the way it works is um, it's milestone based. So what most companies will do is they'll say, we're raising a million pounds. We've built this minimum viable product. It can do X. And with the million pounds, we're going to hire two more developers and a couple of salespeople. And we think that within the next 18 months, spending this million pounds, we'll be able to add all these other features so it can do X and Y and Z. And we'll have one, 10 more customers, which will give us half a million a year in revenue. Um, and at that point, 
they've reached a milestone when they can then go to back to the same investors or to new investors and to get more money. Um, and this is why, why you sometimes see, if you, if you look in the papers, you see the story of companies like Facebook and Google, where they do rounds of investment. They mm. might take a million, 10 million, 100 million, 500 million, a billion. Um, as they're growing and they're building the business out, they're raising more money privately from their existing investors and other venture capital um, to the point where they're eventually they're ready to sell that company um, on to another buyer or onto the stock market with mm. an IPO. Mm. Interesting. So how do you feel about um, the, the, the sort of popular categories of of, of the way you all, maybe your sort of businesses are portrayed? I'm thinking like Dragon's Den, okay. And I was in Olu a few years ago in, in, in Finland and they have a, a tech startup presentation thing where they get somebody to stand in a water hole, an ice hole, and present from there. Oh. As, long as, as long as they can stand it, they can present, right? Oh, that's <laughs> very good. It was it was it was fun, but I just you know, obviously it was a bit gimmicky. Do those things work? Does that help your your sort of your line of work? It is a little bit like Dragon's Den uh, in some ways, except that the investors aren't nearly as greedy as they are in Dragon's Den. And there's a good there's a good reason for that actually. If you take too much of the company too early on, then yeah. sometimes the entrepreneur doesn't have enough incentive to stick with it, yeah. and also there isn't enough left of the company to sell on. I mentioned this milestone based investing when you go from one stage to another. Um, and if you've already taken 40 or 60 percent of the company at the very beginning, there's not much left to sell to the next round of the next mm-hmm. round of the next round of investors. So professional investors, not to pe- call the people on Dragon's Den anything other than that, um, but people who do this for a living are much more um, much more balanced, perhaps, in how much equity yeah. they expect to take. It's typically 20 percent of the company. You put a valuation on the company. You say the company's worth five million or 4 million before the before the money comes in. We take another million, now it's worth 5 million, 20% of the shares go to the investors. So it's a million pounds for 20%. And then the next round, 20% is typical. So you do 20% and then another 20%, right. and another 20% as you, as you go through this journey. Um, so that's typically how it works. Although the, what you described, um, when I started, I, I mentioned I did the investment in Calm and then in Brilliant. And I wanted to learn how to do this properly. So I actually went to some of those kind of sessions. Mm. There was one at the time in, in Silicon Valley, well, in San Francisco, actually, um, called Launch Festival. And what they did there was they had 50 companies on stage launching. That was their launch event. Right. Um, and they had they basically had to pitch the pitch their company, pitch for investment in front of a panel of judges, very like Dragon's Den. Um, there were four or five venture capitalists who were judging them. And what I used to do was I, I took my iPad with me and I made notes and I scored them as they were presenting. And then I listened to what the venture capitalist said and I thought, oh, that's exactly what I thought. Or actually, most of the time I thought, no, I didn't think of that. That's a really good point. Um, so I was kind of scoring them out of 10 and saying, I think this is a nine. And then the venture capitalist would say, well, this isn't going to work because of X, Y and Z. Um, and so I just did that a lot. Um, part of what you're doing with this kind of investing is your pattern matching. So you're trying mm. to look at, um, you're trying to look for similarities between things that you've seen that are, have worked or are working. And then you're trying to project that onto the companies that you're evaluating and saying, this one looks a bit like that one and that one and that one. 
and therefore I think this could possibly work. So the more you look at, I was going to say that sounds like a very AI way of describing it, but carry on. Oh, probably. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's one of those things. That's true of a lot of things in life, right? The more you do it, the better you get. Um, Mm. So I've looked. Although my very first one is the is the one that's worth the most money, ironically. (laughs) Um, So far, Calm is the one that's uh, multi-billion valuation. but actually, the more you do it, the better you should should get. I, mm. I think that is true. The more I'm learning and the more I'm able to to quickly rule things in or out, the ones I like and don't like. One of the things that's very important in this is knowing what you like investing in and, and knowing what you're good at investing in. And also, it's equally important to know what you're not good at investing in right. and that you don't do. So I don't do anything to do with... Um, anything biological, anything that's to do with pharma. A lot of venture capital firms, they will do um, they will do software and they'll do things like uh, medicines and new pharma. Part of the reason that is because those businesses, which seem very unrelated, um, both have this uh, zero marginal cost effect. So, you know, with software, when you sell one copy of, so- if you write some software for somebody, it costs you all the money to develop the first copy. Mm. The second copy and the hundredth copy and the hundred thousandth copy and the billionth copy of Microsoft Windows doesn't cost Microsoft anything to make. Um, so it has zero marginal cost. Every copy you make costs you pretty much nothing. And it's the same with the drugs industry with, with pharma, which is why venture capital likes both of those. Yeah. Um, so I don't do anything in that area. I don't do anything to do with marketplaces because they're quite okay. complicated things like ebay that kind of yes. you know where you have two sides in a marketplace uh, because they're very hard to scale the two sides of the marketplace at the same rate interesting so i don't yeah. go anywhere near that so i've kind of i've made a few mistakes and learned from those as i've gone along and so i've i start to filter things out that i don't do i like business to business so com- businesses that are selling their software for other businesses to use and the business could be a university, sure. Um, you know, it's business-like, or it could be a government department. It's kind of business-like. Yeah. Um, so I typically don't do consumer stuff, even though I did do calm. Um, <laughs> I typically don't do consumer stuff because I don't really feel that I understand that area well enough. It really needs specialists, which is what which is what happens with venture capital. Um, there's generalist VC firms, and now there are a lot of very specialist ones as well. Um, I work closely with, with one called Pi Labs in London, which is a, yeah, a European, yes. mm. so European, well, worldwide, really, a venture capital firm based in London, which is investing in property technology. So anything to do with real estate. Uh, so they've, what, what Pi Labs have done is they've specialised in the vertical and they've become experts in that field. Mm. You know, they know a lot about the real estate industry as well as about technology deployed into real estate. I just want to replay a couple of things that you've said. One of the things that we talk about quite a lot at BCS with our members, over the years, we've used phrases like soft skills against hard skills and things like that. Um, you know, the, the parlance changes. But it seems to me that what you're talking about here, that what the, the, the qualities you look for are quite heavily weighted towards what you used to call soft skills. So the actual um you know personal qualities of the individuals involved rather than just the fact that they might be brilliant at coding or whatever that might be do you think that's still um viewed importantly enough by people that are in the ai uh, in the computing area um it's probably increasingly important i think 
think the soft skills, I mean, they are real skills. If, mm. if you think of two, you know, the two, the, the archetypal founders of a tech startup are two people who have done computer science. One of them might be slightly more businessy. One of them might be slightly more technical. Um, and they start a company. But if that company grows and grows and grows, eventually those two people are going to be the executives running a multi-million pound business in with employees in multiple countries and um, you know potentially hundreds of employees. Some of the companies I've I've backed have got many of them have got hundreds of employees now, and so they have to be able to work with people. Um, when they're dealing with their investors, they have to be able to work with people. When they're dealing with customers, they have to be able to work with people. Yeah. So, so one of the things I, I do very much do is I, I look at the founders from through the lens of, would I be would I want to work for them? Would I be able to work with them? Will they able, be able to hire a top team of really smart people, capable people who will come and and, and also want to work with them? Um, Sometimes if I'm investing in a business which is slightly later stage, so it's gone beyond the two founders who are starting the company, I'll very much want to look at the leadership team and see, is there a starting to be a diversity of talent? It's difficult for there to be a huge diversity with two. You might yeah. get a female male, which I've got plenty of. Um, as you're starting to get to 10 or 15 or 20 people, I would not want to see 15 or 20 blokes who have done computer science mm. i'd want to see a really good diversity of people from different fields different life experiences um and that's because they i want them to build something that works for everybody right um and I'm, i want that from both the societal point of view but i actually want it also from the commercial point yeah. of view because yeah. it'll be more successful if it's able to address more things um, if it's able to represent and address all of the potential customers that are out there for the product. I'm so, yeah, I look at founders, but I look at the founding team as well. The founding team is very important. That's interesting. I, as you know, we're big on the diversity side of things and, and that very well uh, describes yeah, right. why, so, why we feel yeah. that way. Yeah. Yeah. On the, um, going a little bit more on the sort of diversity conversation, I, do, do you see increased opportunities in, in certain um, we might call them niche areas, but I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, this year, we're going to do um, a bit of research about the experience of those uh, disabled people, neurodiverse people in their experience of IT, uh, and maybe just promoting the idea of universal design as being beneficial for everybody. Do, do, you, do you see increasing ideas in that direction, or is, that, is, is there a bit of a gap there that we need to start thinking about a bit more? Um. I see a lot of people starting. It's 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 increasing the number of people who are looking to build solutions in those kinds of areas. Mm. Um, I have I have one investment, I would say, in that area, um, in a company called Alicia, which makes it's it's wonderful actually. People should I would encourage people to Google it and have a look at their their website. It's really it's really uplifting. They make big brightly lit buttons it's f-i-l-i-s-i-a felicia and um, they make felicia interfaces they make big light up colored buttons which are used by uh, kids with special needs particularly at, uh, at special schools um, and these buttons light up in different colors in different sequences and what they've built is a whole series of 
let's call them games, but actually they're properly therapeutic exercises where the buttons will light up in different sequences. It might be a follow me game where it says, you know, what they'll light up blue, orange, red, and then the child has to do blue, orange, red in the right sequence. Um, or you might put the buttons all around the room in different places, and then the child has to go around the room lighting. As the buttons light up, they have to go over and press that one and then go over and press a different one. So those kinds of solutions, I think, are increasingly being developed now. Um, I suppose it's, it comes from, and this is possibly a wrong thing, but it's, rea it's reality. People build solutions for the biggest customer mm. demographic they possibly can. Yeah. Um, thankfully now, we're at the point where people are starting to build, let's call it more niche solutions, but still very, very important. And in fact, those big light up buttons have got potential for um, other use cases, things like dementia use cases where mm. you could have a big light up button, you know, and you press the blue button and it places a Zoom call to your daughter. You know, just hit that big button and it activates the call. So you can start to see um, these new technologies as they're being invented, people are able to look at them and say, oh, I think I can think of a new use case for that. And yeah. um, so I, I think it's growing. I hope it's growing. Um, I see it growing. And certainly what Felicia is doing is, is really, really exciting. They've, they're a British company. They've um, just started selling in America, which is a huge potential market mm -hmm. for them, obviously. Yeah. So I wish them all the very best with that. That's really interesting, Barry. Uh, you give us some interesting examples of, of, of what you do as well. So uh, maybe uh, just one final thing, you know, that we're, we're very interested at BCS on on trying to inspire people, trying to give them a little bit more to read. I'd just like to ask who's inspired you over the years, what what people you sort of, who are your go-tos for ideas or or maybe just people in your past who have who've helped you sort of move on, you know. Uh, I'll name two. Um, okay. Check two. Um one of them is Rashid Palmer, who's now the CEO of the BCS. He was my nah. my colleague at IBM. Well said. <laughs> um, if Rashid tells you to do something, do it, because it's probably very good advice. I um, I bumped into him years ago, and I was driving a lot at the time, and he said, oh, if you're driving, you should listen to a podcast called This Week in Tech, um, TWIT, which is a, a podcast mm. of a, a few grumpy Silicon Valley journalists complaining about um the big technology companies like IBM and Microsoft. So I listened to that and on there they mentioned This Week in Startups, uh, which is another podcast. And I thought, oh, that sounds good. So uh, that's a podcast which is done by a, quite a famous angel investor and entrepreneur called Jason Calacanis. Mm -hmm. um, so I listened to Jason's podcast and it was through watching that that he introduced his listeners to Calm, to Alex Chu, who's the founder of Calm. He's a, a British guy, actually. Um, and it was Jason who then emailed his super fans like me saying, would you like to invest alongside me in, in this thing called Calm? So that's how I got on. That's how I got into this game. It was thanks to Rashik. OK. And then pulling that string, I think that there's something in in your career that giving things a go and just like pulling on a thread and seeing where it leads and then keep on pulling. So. Rashik took me to This Week in Tech, which took me to This Week in Startups, which took me to Jason Calacanis and his syndicate. And then I did two. I did a second one, which was brilliant, which then connected me with an entrepreneur in London who was starting a, um, an, educational, um, an educational venture capital firm called Emerge Education. 
And so I had a meeting with him and I pulled that thread and I started investing in his companies. And here I am, I've done 60 investments and it's been life changing for me, really, not just financially, but in the friends I've made and the people I've met. Yeah. Um, entrepreneurs are a, a kind of a self-selecting group of people. They tend to be very bright. And I think I said earlier, they want to see change happen. So they tend to be very inspiring people to get to know. Yeah. Um, so for me, it's been it's been a wonderful journey and it's given me a really different set of things to do to what I did with my original computer science degree and a, a corporate career at IBM. Um, it's led me in a completely different direction, but I've been able to kind of reuse a lot of the skills that I had. Um, and I'm sure it's true for all of the members of the and fellows at, at the BCS that they all have skills and abilities that if they're interested to go on this kind of a journey, um, certainly all the big cities of the UK have got startup communities. Mm. Um, so go along, meet people and give them the benefit of your advice. And you might end up becoming an advisor to the company. They might give you some shares in the business. Um, I did it originally at IBM. I told IBM I was doing it. They were fine with it. I spent my evenings and weekends doing it. Um, and it was kind of a hobby. And then it's something since I left IBM that's turned into a, a professional full-time career really well that's been that's been really fascinating barry thanks you know I've, I've i found what you had to say inspiring some of these things your some of these products and that that become reality they look really cool so you know, i recommend the listeners to go out and find those i'll put some details in the in the blurb of the podcast i remember jason calacanis uh, didn't he become a big elon musk uh, sort of fan and i i, I think i seem to remember that putting me up a little bit but uh... yes <laughs> um i'm not a super fan of elon musk he's a brilliant engineer we have to yeah. respect. I just saw his um, Starlink box a couple of days ago yeah. at a company. Unbelievable. There were 30 people using that in the company. Unbelievable response times. It was really, really impressive. So it's impressive what he's achieved engineering-wise. Yes. Uh, yeah. But Jason actually is a is a personal friend of his going back a long, ah, long way, okay. back to the PayPal days. So right. yes. I think he's somebody who's very loyal to his friends, which is a quality. Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Nothing wrong with that, is there? Absolutely. Um, Barry, can I say thanks so much for speaking to us and, uh, uh, you know, wish you all the best with your investments and thank you for, for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you very much. That's very kind of you, Brian. Sure.